0: I'm in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us by your word today. We praise you that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And we praise you, O Lord, that you have not left your word to chance, but rather you have set it down in print. That we might have it and treasure it. That we might hear it and receive it. That we might be changed by it. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would not only speak, but give your servants ears to hear. Help us listen, help us receive, help us become what you would have us be. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, let me welcome again any visitors that we have with us this morning. We are glad that you are with us. We can't think of any place we'd rather you to be than with us as a family, as we celebrate what Christ has done for us and given himself for our sins and rising, raising, being raised from the dead for our salvation. There's nothing that we put more emphasis on than on that. What Jesus has done for sinners to save us from our sin and to make us members of the family of God. And if you want to know more about that, then we invite you to lean into this sermon and listen. Stick around after the sermon and let us talk with you. Uh, it might be helpful to you if you've come this morning and you don't, you've forgotten your Bible or didn't bring your Bible. It might be helpful if you would follow along with us in the Bible. And to that end, we have some Bibles in the back that we're, we're happy to, to give to you this morning. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hands and one of the ushers will bring you uh, a Bible this morning. Anyone in need of a Bible? Excellent. If you don't have a Bible at home, let that be our gift to you. We want very much for you to to take that, to enjoy that, to read that, to treasure God's Word. It it is life, and you will find life in it, and so do take that with you. Uh, We're going to be this morning in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, which you'll find in the New Testament, and someone's going to tell me what page number it's on in the Bibles we just provided, on page 974, page 974. If you're visiting with us this morning, you've landed in the middle of a series that we're doing through our Statement of Faith. A Statement of Faith is something that churches use as a way of just summarizing what they believe the Bible teaches about important matters in the Bible. The particular statement that we use is called the Second London Baptist Statement of Faith. Uh, It's written in 1689. It's been used by Baptist churches uh, for over 300 years now, uh, and we stand in that tradition. And so what we're doing is working our way, chapter by chapter, through that statement. And we've come now to chapter 21, which is a statement called Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. In a word, it's a section that deals with freedom. With freedom. Now, we hear a lot about freedom nowadays, don't we? From politicians who talk about America being the freest nation on earth, to teenagers demanding freedom from their parents to many people who advocate freedom that is sometimes suspect and dubious, freedom having to do with what we do with our bodies or who we marry and things of that sort. This is a word that is an old word that's been a treasured word for as long as there have been people standing on two feet looking to live, freedom. it's not always a well-understood word. It's not always a well-understood concept. And that's often true for Christians as well. I don't know when it first occurred to me perhaps it was on the umpteenth time that someone made an appointment to come talk with me as a pastor and arrived at the appointment and had some decision that they needed help with. And sometimes the decision was fairly black and white. All they needed was someone to walk them through the Scripture and the Bible sort of answered that question for them. But sometimes the the question lie in some kind of gray area. Not gray in terms of not knowing the difference between right or wrong or good or bad, but the gray area that arises when it's a choice between two good options, good and good. Which good should I pursue? Those become questions of freedom. And oftentimes what I've discovered is Christians are most paralyzed when it comes to using their freedom. They want God to sky write it for them. They want the Bible to jump out in 3D and make all the decisions for them. You know, they they want to, and are sometimes anxious, and this, is, this grows out of a good thing, but they're sometimes anxious about, I want to make sure I'm in God's will. Nothing's been more paralyzing to Christians than that phrase, in God's will, when it comes to Christian freedom. So we want to think this morning about freedom, what it is, And how to enjoy it. The main point for the sermon this morning uh, from Galatians 5, verses 1 to 15, we might put it this way The spiritual goal of Christian freedom is the selfless enjoyment of that freedom. The spiritual goal of Christian freedom is the selfless enjoyment of that freedom. And we're going to see this uh, in three points in Galatians chapter 5. The first point, if you're taking notes, comes right from verse 1, and it's simply this, enjoy your freedom, Christian. Enjoy your freedom. The second point uh, comes uh, there as we follow into verses 2 to 15. Protect your freedom in Christ. Protect your freedom in Christ Christ. And the third point also comes from verses 2 to 15. Use your freedom in Christ well. Enjoy, protect, and use your freedom in Christ. Look with me in Galatians 5, beginning at verse 1. If you're new to the Bibles and you hear me say verse 1, I'm referring to the small number. If you hear me say chapter 5, that's the big number on the page. So Galatians 5, beginning in verse 1. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. First thing we want to observe in the text, first point we want to make is this, is Christian, enjoy your freedom. I take that just really paraphrasing verse one, the first half of verse one. You see what Paul writes there. He says there, <clears throat> for freedom, Christ has set us free. That's really the main point of the sermon. It's the main point of this section of the scripture. The spiritual goal of Christian freedom is the enjoyment, the selfless enjoyment of that freedom. Notice how Paul writes that sentence. It's an awkward construction, isn't it? For freedom. Christ has set us free. I don't know how many Star Wars fans we have in here, but it's like Paul is having a Yoda moment, you know? You know how Yoda speaks, he always puts the verb in front of the subjects. So he says things like, take out the trash, you go. (laughs) You know? And and Paul is saying something like this here. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We we could turn the other way around and have the same meaning. Christ has set us free for freedom. The goal is, of Christ's liberating work in our lives is liberty, is the enjoyment of that liberty. You have been set free, not on the way to some other state, not to enjoy something else so that your freedom is is sort is sort of only useful as it gets you to that other thing. No, you have been set free to enjoy freedom itself, to enjoy liberty itself. In the Greek language, oftentimes, if you want to place emphasis on something, you put it in the front of the sentence. It's the first thing in the list, or it's the first thing in the sentence. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's emphasizing free, freedom. For freedom, for liberty, for the, for the escaping of bondage, Christ has set you free. That's the goal. Let that settle. Christian. We are so accustomed to thinking of what we can do for the Lord. We're so accustomed to thinking about the the salvation that Christ has purchased for us. And if we're not careful, we almost think of it as a down payment for our doing something now for Christ. That's what Piper calls the debtor's ethic. that that God has rescued us, God has saved us and and we feel ourselves now indebted to God and and though we would never put it this way in our own Christian experience, we're kind of trying to work off the debt. We're kind of trying to be worthy of the purchase price. We're not. We're neither worthy of the purchase price, the blood of Christ, nor are we able to work off the debt, which is the blood of Christ. Rather, rather, What this text says is God merely wants you to enjoy what he has purchased for you. To enjoy the freedom that he has given. This isn't as easy as it sounds, is it? I I mean, when, when we have been all our lives enslaved to sin and passions and various ways of thinking and acting, and Christ comes now, the liberator, and sets us free, we have to learn now how to live freely. It's like those many brothers and sisters and neighbors who have been incarcerated for some number of years and they, and they get out of prison finally and they were glad to get out of prison and they get out of prison and when they get home, the, the family throws a party. We're welcoming, uh, you know, baby boy home and uh, we're glad he's home. And, and the first couple days is a party and friends come through. But by week one, week two, you notice that baby boy still eats his food with one arm over the plate, guarding it. And you notice that being at home in the house alone unsettles him. He's not used to not having a guard or someone around. And you notice he doesn't trust people. And pretty soon, he almost looks like he wants to go back to prison. And many do. I had a high school friend who had been in and out of trouble with the law. He was just like baby boy. He got out of jail. He came home. He was home for several months. We were glad to see him. We were hanging out with him. And uh, one night, about 2 o'clock, he just broke into this, this corner store. Broke into the corner store, um, went into the cooler, got a six-pack, pulled out the owner's chair, sat down on the chair, and began drinking the six-pack, waiting on the police to come. He wanted to go back to jail. He wasn't used to his freedom. He didn't know how to use it. It wasn't the blessing that he had had thought it would be. And so as Christians too, we have to get used to now enjoying this freedom. And one of the best ways to enjoy this freedom is to articulate the things that Christ has freed us from. I don't know when's the last time you sat down to make a list of the things that Christ has freed you from. And, and when preachers say that, they sound self-righteous. I, I didn't do that until I was working on this sermon, okay? So, so I'm assuming you haven't done it recently either, right? That's what that means. I just discovered this, now i act like I always knew it. That, so When's the last time you articulated or noted the freedoms that you had because of Christ? That's how our statement of faith starts. You'll see it printed in your bulletins there. Look with me and let's read together that that first paragraph in our statement of faith. What page is that in the bulletin? On page nine. I'm going to read this together. And I want you to notice something. That that freedom, freedom, it, it sort of is made up of two parts. We are free from some things, and we are free to other things. That Christ has set us free from certain things, but he's also set us free to certain things. The first three sentences are the things he's freed us from, and the next sentence is the thing he's freed us to. And, and let's just take note of this as we read together. Let's read this together. Christ has purchased for all believers a liberty inherent in the gospel. It comprises freedom from the guilt of sin, from the condemnation that follows upon guilt, from the wrath of God, and from the severity and curse of God's law. It also includes deliverance from this present evil world and from all such things as bondage to Satan, sin's domination, the hurtfulness of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and eternal damnation. Furthermore, it includes free access to God and the yielding of obedience to him, not as it were with the fear of a slave of his master, but with a childlike love and readiness. Isn't that amazing? Go back this afternoon, take the statement of faith, take the scripture references, look up all the scripture references and see in the Bible how many things it is Christ has set us free from. And that statement just only gets better. So you see that second paragraph there? He continues with a comment on the degree of our freedom as compared to the Old Testament saints of Israel. Let's consider that together. All these blessings were more or less enjoyed by believers in Old Testament days. But under New Testament conditions, Christian liberty becomes more extensive It includes freedom from the burdens imposed by the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, greater boldness in approaching the throne of grace, and a larger measure of the free spirit of God than was normally granted to saints in the pre-Christian era. What a wonderful thing that the fullness of God's freedom has come on us in the last days who are in Christ. The more we meditate on what we have been freed from and what we've been freed to, the more we treasure and rejoice in our freedom, don't we? Did you notice how we receive this freedom? If you're not yet a Christian, I want you to pay particular attention to this. Did you notice how we receive this freedom? It's, It's in the first sentence of the first paragraph. Christ has purchased for all believers a liberty inherent in the gospel. In other words, this liberty, which is another word for freedom, is inherent in the gospel. That means it is naturally included in the gospel. It is a natural part of the gospel message itself. And and this freedom, notice there, it's not purchased by us. It's not purchased by us. It is purchased for us, by Christ. Christ has purchased for, notice, all believers a liberty inherent in the gospel. This means any one of us who would be spiritually free, free from sin, free from death, free from the wrath of God, free from the penalty of the law because of our sin, free from the guilt that arises out of the knowledge of our sin, anyone who would be free from those things and free to approach God in, in, in childlike acceptance and free now to, to praise God and to worship God and to, and to know God, anyone who would be free from their sin and free to worship God, all they would need to do is believe the gospel. All who believe the gospel receive this liberty. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, the most important question to ask yourself right now is what is the gospel? What is this gospel that I must believe in order to be free? We can summarize it in four brief statements. Number one, the gospel is a message about God's holiness and ownership of us all. It begins there. God created the world with the word, and he created us in his image and his likeness. And because he created us, he owns us. God is our owner. Whether we acknowledge him or not, we belong to him. And to him, we must give an account. And this God who created us, he's also holy. That means he's He's without sin. He's without fault. He's without blemish. He is absolutely pure and right and good. And because he's absolutely pure and right and good, he has no tolerance for sin and evil and darkness. That's bad news for us. Which brings us to the second thing that this gospel message teaches us. It teaches us not only about a holy creator God, it teaches us about a, a sinful hell-deserving mankind. All of us were meant to know God. We were made in his image and likeness, which means we were given capacities that are unique among all creatures so that we can know God and fellowship with God and, and walk with God. But instead of doing that, our first parents, the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, did something that we all have since replicated an infinite number of times. They disobeyed God. They sinned against God. And sin entered the world, and sin affected us all, the preacher to the people. And because of that sin, that holy God was angry with us. He separated us from himself, and he pronounced that should we die separated from him in our sin, that he would judge us for our sin, and eternally we would know his judgment, his agonizing judgment, without relief. That's the problem with man. Now the third thing in this gospel is that God has done something about our sin. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. He was always God, Jesus, the Son of God, but he took upon himself human flesh, and he was born of a virgin, and he came into the world with a particular mission, and that mission was to do two things, to provide the obedience that we had denied giving God, and to suffer the penalty that we owed because of our rebellion. He did both of those things. He lived a a sinless, perfect life in order that he could offer to God the righteousness that we do not have. And then he went to the cross of Calvary and there he was crucified. And the worst part was not the physical suffering. It wasn't the nails and the the, the boards and and the hanging and the asphyxiation, the choking to death. The worst part was God punished Jesus for our sin. The worst of his suffering was the wrath of God which we deserve. Christ volunteered to take our place, to pay our penalty, and three days later to prove that his sacrifice was accepted by God. God raised him from the dead, and he he rose in glory and ascended to heaven, and is coming again to gather his people, which brings us to the fourth point. This holy God, who's angry at sinful man, has sent his son into the world to take our place in righteousness and suffering and raised him from the dead. And now God calls all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to believe in Christ. The repenting simply means turning, turn away from sin. The believing means trusting. Trust God's promises in Jesus Christ, that everyone who believes in him would be forgiven of their sins, that God's wrath would be satisfied in his son, that they would be adopted into his family and made children in his household, that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and and live eternally with God in in the face and 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 the love and the pleasures of God. Repent and trust that Christ is your Savior and you will be saved. You will escape the wrath of God to come. You will be set free from it, and you will find yourself enabled to worship God as your own. You'll be set free to know him. If you're here this morning and that message is new to you, you've not heard that before, or maybe you're hearing it with a a strange and new clarity, or maybe you're hearing it with with a, a new appeal that you you, you hadn't had before, let, let me encourage you to follow that impulse, to, to follow that impulse, to, to know it more clearly, to know it more deeply, and to, and to have it for yourself. It, it may be that that comes, I know it does, from the Spirit of God. It doesn't come from the world. It doesn't come from your flesh. It doesn't come from the devil. If you are feeling yourself drawn to this message and drawn to this Jesus, don't pull back. Don't harden your heart. Come forward. Lean in. Learn more. Trust Christ and be saved. It may be that when you hear this message about following Jesus that you have sometimes thought that that was slavery. That to follow Jesus was to have a whole list of things that you no longer could do. And to have somebody in your business like the pastor telling you how you ought to live. And it may be that that sounded to you like a Like slavery. I hope that you see this morning that when we call you to follow Christ, we're calling you to freedom. The slavery is your sin. Christ is your freedom. Come to him, trust him, and be set free. And Christian, this is for our enjoyment. This is not for us to earn. It's not for us to pay back. It is for us to luxuriate in, to delight in. And the question becomes, how do we do that? And the first thing I want to tell you, it brings us to our second point, is we must learn to protect our freedom. We must learn to protect our freedom. We have this amazing liberty, and just because we have it doesn't mean we can keep it. How many of you saw the movie 12 Years a Slave? Or read the book 12 Years a Slave? Powerful movie. I I highly commend you. It's it's about a man named Solomon Northrop in the 1800s who was a free man, a free African-American living in the Northeast somewhere, who in his freedom enjoyed a wonderful life. He had a a wonderful wife, a beautiful family. The movie opens with him and his family walking the streets of maybe it's New York or some city in the Northeast, and he's going into shops and and purchasing goods, and and he's a fairly cultured man. He plays the violin quite professionally, and, and the movie opens with him being invited to play the violin for some prominent family in some other town, and he accepts the invitation from a couple of guys that he doesn't know and they trick him, and they capture him, and they sell this free man into slavery. It's a powerful picture of how our freedoms can be taken, even our spiritual freedoms in Christ. And Paul was dealing with that in this letter to the Galatians. Just to give you a little context, look back to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Again, chapter numbers the big number. The verse number is a small number. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul begins to address, the, the, the sort of give us the reason as to why he has written this letter to the church in Galatia. And he says there, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, how are they troubling the church at Galatia? How are they distorting the gospel? Well, Paul tells the Galatians about a meeting he had with other Christian leaders where they were clarifying this very thing, what the gospel entails and what freedom comes from the gospel. So in chapter 2, uh, he tells that story. But look at verses 3 and 5 of chapter 2. Paul talks about this meeting, and he has a guy, a, a, a friend of his with him named Titus. He says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. See, the issue was there were some people coming into the church who were of Jewish background saying, in order to be a Christian, you had to also be circumcised. Yes, you must believe in Christ, but you also must be circumcised and to keep that aspect of the law. And Paul goes on to say, he was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to what? Spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Christ. So that they might what? Bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, beloved, right from the beginning of the Christian church, freedom has been a difficult concept to understand and protect. Right at the beginning of the church, there are those people who are looking to spy on the liberty of Christians and to take them captive again by the law. And there are three threats to our freedom that we see in verses 2 to 15. The first threat is this, our personal choices. Our personal choices. See that there, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Or again in verse 2, look, I, Paul, said to you that if you accept circumcision, those words, submit to, accept, that's the language of choosing, isn't it? That's that's the language of, of volunteer submission. The, the, the word submit literally means to, to put yourself under something. It says now don't put yourself under the yoke of slavery to the law. That that yoke is a is a picture, you know, you drive oxen with that heavy wooden beam that you put over their necks. That's a that's a yoke. It's a lot like a, a harness on a horse. You, you come under that harness or that yoke, and you're controlled by whoever has the reins. Paul says, don't, don't submit yourself to that. Don't, don't, notice, accept circumcision. Dr. King famously said, a man can't ride your back unless you're bent over. There is a, a way of giving up your freedom voluntarily. Others can't enslave us unless we take the yoke. Verse two to six tells us why it would be disastrous for, for those of us who have been freed from the requirements of the law to go back to the law in order to be justified before God. Notice here, five things, five, five disasters that result from personally choosing slavery. In verse two, number one, Christ will be of no advantage to you. All that Jesus is and all that he does will be nothing to you if you leave the cross and faith in Christ and go about trying to establish your own righteousness by obeying the law. It won't count for you one bit. Notice then, verse 3, not only does Christ, is Christ have no advantage to you, but in verse 3, the second thing we're told is that that man who goes back to the law is obligated to keep the whole law. It's not just a matter of whether or not you get your foreskin foreskin snipped in circumcision. Uh, Oh, if you're going to be righteous before God by keeping the law, you don't get to pick and choose which parts of the law. Uh, You you have to, in fact, obey all of the law. For all the law is one piece. It's like a a stained glass window. Every glass, different color, different piece. But it all makes one mosaic image. And, And to break one piece out is to break the window. So it is with the law. To break one part of the law is to break the entire window of God's holiness. Paul says, listen, Christ came to fulfill the law for us. But if you turn to him, he's no longer of any advantage to you, and you are obligated to the whole law. Who of us can stand before God and say, we kept your law perfectly? Notice the third thing. In verse 4, you are severed from Christ. He's not only no advantage to him, you're not even connected to him any longer. Christ is the head of the church. And here, Paul sees a kind of decapitation, that if you turn back to the law, then you are severed from the head of the church. You're severed from from Christ himself. And he goes on to say in verse 4, you have fallen away from grace. Of course you have, because you have sought to live before God according to the law not the kindness of God in the cross. In verse 5, Paul puts it there in the positive, but I think we can turn around and understand him to mean something in the negative. And so in verse 5, he says, we, through the Spirit, by faith, what do we do as Christians? We hope for a righteousness. We, we look forward with confidence to the fulfillment and a demonstration of that righteousness that will be revealed When Christ comes, but if you turn back to the law away from Christ, you have no hope of righteousness. You have no hope of ever pleasing God by your own obedience. And again, you may be asking yourself, who in the world turns away from freedom and personally chooses to go back to slavery? That might seem bizarre to you because we've, we've come to hate slavery and love freedom. But the world is full of such instances. Write these verses down. Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. And then look also at Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. This is when Moses is leading Israel out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And you know, when he got those rascals out of Egypt, part of the Red Sea and did all these miraculous plagues, 10 of them, they did all this stuff before them and led them out, and they got out and got a little hungry. You know what they said? Why you bring us out here in this desert? Man, back in Egypt, man, we had pots with meat in it. You know, we had the good life in Egypt, but hey, you know, Moses at food. He was a slave. <laughs> the history of the world is full of people who would choose slavery. Harry Tubman led so many African-American slaves to freedom on the Underground Railroad. You know that very often it's said that Harriet Tubman had a Bible in one hand and a pistol in the other? And very often she used a pistol not for those who were chasing him, but for those African Americans who, once they started on the railroad, wanted to go back. And she said, fool, you will be free or die. There's something called Stockholm Syndrome. You ever heard of that? Where persons have been captured, kidnapped, taken by some hostile persons and have been in their sort of capture so long and had this experience with their captors to the point where they come to sort of have empathy for the captors and even begin to defend the persons who have taken their liberty. Oh, not know. slavery is seductive. Slavery gets comfortable. You can get used to the routine of slavery, physical or spiritual, and when you begin to try and learn to live freely and have to make some personal choices, it can be very alluring to go back to the old life which you once knew. And that's whether that's justification by circumcision or whether that's just going back to the the old routines and the old relationships and the old habits that you once had. You got a little lonely that night, and so you thought you'd call them. That's slavery calling. You had a a bump in the road in your sobriety. You had been doing quite well, but now now the bottle or the needle or whatever it is, it's calling your name. That's slavery. And to choose it would be to voluntarily choose enslavement rather than freedom. Don't underestimate the importance of the power of personal choice. The first thing we need to do is to protect our freedom by choosing wisely. By choosing wisely, using our freedom in a way that furthers our freedom. And we want to avoid this this self-righteousness that comes out of this, right? So that's part of what Paul is talking about. Look with me at verse 6 real quickly. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. (laughs) It's, It's striking. It doesn't matter if we boast in doing the law or if we boast that we don't do the law. That circumcision... I'm circumcised, so I'm righteous, or I didn't get circumcised, so I'm righteous. And either way, you, you can become self-righteous. Let, let me give you another example. There are persons who boast in the fact that they don't drink. And they're mad at people who do drink. And, and not, they're, not, they're, they're not so mad, mad at the person who struggles with alcohol, who from time to time gets drunk. They know that's wrong. They say that's wrong. Help them. The only one they really hate is the one that uses their freedom to drink responsibly because they're a stumbling block to the guy who drinks alcohol. And they, and they get proud and boastful, and they say, I don't drink, and I don't think Christians should drink. Self-righteousness. But on the other side is the one who uses their liberty to have a glass of wine. And they do it responsibly. They don't get drunk. They're not drunk because they're not taken in sin by having a glass of wine. It's not sin at all. And they would have concern for the person who does get drunk and is responsible, and they would recognize that it's wrong and, and want to help that person. But you know who they're self-righteous about the one who never drinks at all. They had a real problem, the legalists, you know? And so whether we do or whether we don't, we we are building our righteousness on whether we do or we don't. Paul says, none of it matters. Circumcision or circumcision, the only thing that counts is faith in Jesus Christ expressing itself in law. What a tightrope to walk and to use our freedom to walk that tightrope, not depending on the left or the right for our own righteousness, but only on Christ. Who is our righteousness. And so personal choice is huge. The second threat to our freedom, is not personal choice, but persuasive teachers. Persuasive teachers. You see that in verses 7 and 12. Look at verse 7. You were running well. And he asked this question, who? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, you were running the Christian race with the eyes on the finish line. The, you had a, a good stride, and it, and it looked like you were going to finish your course. You, you were stroking, and you had delusions of, of being the fastest man or woman in the world, right? You're you just, you just rounding the bend, and you're stroking, and, and, and the Christian life is going quite well. And, and soon later, somebody whistles, and you're like, "Hey!" And you break your stride, and all of a sudden, you're no longer on the course. You up in the stands talking to people. You at the concession stand. You done swerved. Somebody got in your lane, and now you have swerved. That's what that word hindered means. Someone has has put an obstacle in your place, and you no longer obey the gospel. Verse 10, Paul asks about the one who is troubling you, whoever he is. You see, the first problem comes from our personal choice. The second problem comes from outside ourselves, these persuasive teachers who have entered into the church. They were there in the church in Galatia and they're there in churches today. There are men and sometimes women who, who teach things contrary to the gospel and they persuade people to follow them. Not everyone you call pastor or reverend or bishop or apostle is, in fact, a messenger of God. Satan's demons masquerade as angels of light. We must be careful who we listen to and who we allow to influence us in the use of our freedom. And this text in verses 7 and 12 gives us a very simple principle to follow. Here it is. Is this person teaching me to obey the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God? Simple test. Are they teaching me to obey what I have learned in the gospel and in the word of God or not? If the answer is yes, then we still don't follow the person. We follow the truth that they should be pointing us to. We follow the truth of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the answer is no, then we, we reject that teaching, we reject that person as our teacher, and we guard or protect our freedom from their persuasion. You notice there that, that word persuasion. It's a powerful word. It's not coercion. It's more subtle than that. Never wonder how some of the, the teachers who are so far from the gospel got there, and how so many people followed them there, it wasn't because they showed up one day and said, I'm going to start a new church, and I'm going to teach everything I can that's contrary to what the Bible says. That wasn't how they started. We're going to deny the cross. We're going to deny Jesus. We're going to deny the scriptures. No, they sounded a lot like Christians. They used Christian language, and for a while, they taught very much Christian things, and every so often, there would be this, this slight tacking to the left or to the right. Not by, not by 45 degrees or 90 degrees, but, but just by a degree or two. And Something would sound just a little bit off, but, but they would explain it, and, and the people would go, okay. And, and the next time you hear that slightly off thing and they give an explanation, the people go, eh, okay, all right. I believe the other thing. I believe this thing, too. And in the course of time, you're not looking at your Bible. You're not looking at the Scripture in context and you're following the persuasive teacher who's taking you hostage. That, beloved, is a very real threat. And it's why it's difficult to get people out of cult groups. Because the authority has been invested in the teacher, not the book. And some of us come out of backgrounds where we still honor our pastors. We, we still pay a, a godly respect to our pastors. And that's a good thing but it can be turned up too high. And and so sometimes in some of our churches, some of our backgrounds, uh, the most powerful thing that somebody can say is pastor said. Come to me, there's some dispute. Well, pastor said, everybody get straight up and do what pastor said. Listen, pastor said don't mean Jack. (laughs) Unless what pastor said is, thus saith the Lord. I have no authority in your life that does not come from this book. Neither me, nor Matt, nor Jeremy, or any other leader in this church has any right to take captive your conscience, to take captive your freedom, and to submit it to our desires and our own authority. You have every responsibility to reject that, and you have every responsibility to get rid of me. Any authority I have comes from this open book and this is why the the most constant refrain I want you to hear from our sermons is something like this look with me at verse fill in the blank I want to show it to you and I want you to be able to put your finger on the verse and to read it later without me and come to the same conclusion that I gave you in the sermon if you can't do that reject the sermon because my job is simply to explain what the Scripture teaches. And if I start giving you however clever, however novel, sort of new ideas, you need to get yourself a new pastor, in all seriousness. We are here as servants of the Word, and we are called to give you the Word as best as we can. And you're responsible for receiving the Word as it is in the book, and treasuring it, and believing it, and applying it, as as an act of obedience, not to the pastor, but to your Lord. And when your pastor errs, you're called to correct him because they're persuasive teachers who take hostage. Now notice what Paul says about these teachers um, there around verse 7 or so, or excuse me, verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. There's already a judgment pronounced on these teachers. And Paul goes further in something that feels almost like an imprecatory psalm, one of those psalms where David prays against his enemies. He says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? He says, listen, I'm teaching you the truth, and that's why I suffer. If In that case, if I were preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. I shouldn't even be suffering. He says this in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. There's a powerful play on ideas here. Here are people teaching that in order to be a Christian, you must be circumcised. You must clip away the foreskin. And Paul says, let them go the whole way. And have a Lorena Bobbitt moment. Let them be emasculated. Some of you older folks will get that. It was for the older folks. All right? Let them go the whole way. And Paul has strong words for these false teachers. And as a church, we have to have a strong stance against it, all right? So the first thing was personal choice. The second threat here was this this problem with persuasive teachers. And I want us to summarize this by looking at the second paragraph in our statement of faith because I think it captures it quite nicely. Paragraph two. Let's read this together. Everybody have it on page nine of your bulletin? Let's read this with me. God alone is Lord of the conscience. He has set it free from all obligation to receive or obey any such doctrines or demands of men as are in any respect in opposition to his word or not contained in it. Indeed, to believe and obey such doctrines and demands is tantamount to a betrayal of true liberty of conscience. It is against all reasons. And nothing less than the destruction of liberty of conscience when men demand of their fellows an implicit faith, in other words, an absolute and blind obedience. Anyone who demands from you an absolute and blind obedience is destroying your liberty. Only God can bind your conscience, and he does it by his word. Let me give you the third threat. There's a wrong use of personal choice. There are persuasive teachers who sneak in. Number three, there is the perversion of freedom itself. See that there in verses 13 to to 15. The Bible says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What's happening here? It's as if Paul wants to put a guardrail down against misunderstanding. He's been saying you're free, and, and the gospel makes you free, and you're free from these persuasive teachers who want to take you hostage And you're free to to make various choices in Christ. But now he wants to lay down a rail on the other side to say that freedom is is not unconstrained. That freedom isn't a freedom to serve what he says here is your flesh. It's the Bible's way of talking about the sinful nature. The sinful nature, you know that it's at work because when it talks about freedom, it says things like this. I can do anything I want. I'm just going to do me. I don't care what they say. It's all about me and mine. Nobody can tell me anything. That's not from God. Just as Paul says of those, those teachers who pervert the grace of the gospel, he says that persuasion does not come from God. That way of thinking about our freedom does not come from God. For us to enjoy our freedom, we must use it properly. And we have to be careful here because how many good things can be misused and become enslaving bad things. Think about the beauty and the wonder of of marital intimacy. How that gets perverted in adultery or pornography or perverted even before there's marriage and fornication or perverted in illicit relationships that that the Bible describes as, as unnatural. There's a good thing misused and becomes an enslaving thing. Or think about a, a, another example, maybe a silly example. Think about fruit juice. How many of us enjoy Welch's fruit juice? Yeah. The grape is squeezed and high fructose corn syrup is added. <laughs> Food color number seven. And we enjoy Juice. That same juice fermented becomes wine. And Think how many ways wine contributes to sin. Drunkenness, addiction. There's a good thing, the fruit of the land which God has made, perverted to an enslaving and destructive end. And Paul's concern here in this text is with self-righteousness really that trying to build righteousness before God, in this case, by circumcision. But it could be anything. And, and he, just look at what he's arguing here about this self-righteousness. He says in verse 6, you know, people will pursue it on, with regard to circumcision, but it doesn't count for anything, Right? And he comes along a little bit later in verses 7 to 12, and he's, and he's making the argument that if you let people teach you that self-righteousness is the way to relate to God, then, beloved, you know, you, you're going to be enslaved, and, and you're going to fall away from Christ and the grace of Christ, and, and Christ will be of no advantage. But notice what self-righteousness tends to, not just in the individual, but in the church, when we come to verses 13, 14, and 15. See what he says there? We're still thinking about this this self righteousness. He he says, Now, when we're self righteous, we will use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And and what is that going to relate to? What is that going to lead to? Well, it won't be love, and it won't be fulfilling the whole law in verse 14, which is love your neighbors yourself. Instead, verse 15, here's what self righteousness leads to biting and devouring one another. That's what happens. So let's go back to that drinking illustration. Matt doesn't drink. This is all hypothetical, right? So don't, don't start, you know, getting self-righteous with me and Matt in this illustration, right? So, so Matt doesn't drink, but Thabiti does. He has a glass of wine responsibly. And, and Matt kind of being self-righteous decides that Thabiti shouldn't have this glass of wine. And I've tried to talk to Thabiti about this glass of wine, but he keeps him out, freedom. He free, he free. Right? <laughs> Matt does that. You should see him sometimes. He's free. Yo. No, i was <laughs> just kidding. i <No>, was just kidding. <laughs> and so what does Matt do? Matt has a conversation with Jeremy. What do about the BD having wine? Jeremy, like, you know, he always, like, Jeremy, like, I don't know, man. What's up? <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> He was just talking about the game the other day. I don't, you know, what's going on? Matt's like, I don't think Tabiti should be drinking wine because he was stumbling through the rest of the church. The over here. He catch up with Jeremy for lunch, man. He said, guess what, guess what Matt said the other day? You know how Matt get. Matt talking about, I shouldn't have a glass of wine. But the Bible don't forbid a glass of wine. Ephesians says, do not be drunk. And we need to teach people how to use their liberty and need to quit being so self-righteous, man. What do you think about that? You ought to, you ought to join me in teaching the congregation and Matt how to be Not self-righteous, but free. And that little three-party eldership just got divided, didn't it? And Matt and Thabiti are devouring each other with Jeremy. And we're inviting him to this cannibalistic feast. And and it won't stop with the elders. If we are in our flesh, if we use our freedom as opportunity for the flesh, sooner or later, I'm going to be talking to Joe about it. Matt's going to be talking to Kanika about it. And then one of us, the wisest of us, whoever gets wise quick is going to get the lawyers involved, you know. (laughs) And we're going to bring them in. And we're just going to ever so subtly, because we didn't check our self-righteousness, we're going to be eating each other up. Paul says, watch out for that. Use your freedom properly. Be wary of perverting freedom into a license for sin. Those are the three, three threats. Personal choice, persuasive teachers, and the perversion of freedom itself. Freedom was never meant for us to consume upon our own lusts. Let's come to our third point, which are three applications real quickly. Point number three, use your freedom in Christ. Use your freedom in Christ. Look at paragraph three of our statement of faith. Uh, That speaks to what we were just saying about not using our freedom for the flesh, and, and it gives us some guidance in how we are to use our freedom in Christ. It says there, "...to practice any sin or harbor sin's evil desires on a pretense of enjoying Christian liberty perverts the main purpose of gospel grace and imperils those guilty of such an offense." For thereby they destroy the very purpose of Christian liberty, namely that the Lord's people, being delivered out of the hand of their enemies, might serve him with fear or reverence in holiness and righteousness before him all their days. How do we do that? Now, it's strange to give you applications in a sermon about Christian freedom. I feel here the temptation to give you five things to do. And you might be tempted to say, Pastor said Instead, let me give you three things from this text. Thus saith the Lord. Number one, stand firm in your freedom. You see that there in verse one. Stand firm in your freedom. Christ has set you free for the purpose of enjoying that freedom. You plant your feet firmly there and don't let nobody turn you around. Don't let nobody take you from that ground. Don't let nobody move your feet from the freedom that Christ has given you. Resolve that. Not not as a declaration of war against other Christians, but as a personal resolution to enjoy what Christ has given you. Stand firm. Plant your feet. Don't be moved. Number two, obey the truth. Obey the truth. You saw it there in verse 7, Paul asked the question, who hindered you from obeying the truth? That obeying the truth is often used by Paul as a way of talking about continuing in belief of the gospel. So if you want a biblical text for preaching the gospel to yourself every day, here's another one. Obey the truth. Remind yourself of who Christ is and what Christ has done, and what that means to you in terms of your acceptance with God by faith alone, and what that means to you in terms of your freedom as you live for Christ. Obey the truth. And do that in the company of others who are seeking to obey the truth. Number three, serve in love. You saw it in verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself or showing itself in love. Paul comes back to that in verses 13, 14, and 15. He says there the whole law is summarized in this, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. So if you want to enjoy your freedom, then express your freedom in love toward others. It's in expressing your freedom toward others in love that we're taking our eyes off of ourselves, and we're uprooting self-righteousness and we're taking away any opportunity for the flesh and we are considering others more highly than ourselves and we then move toward them in service and in love. The surest way to kill self-interest and self-righteousness is to die to self and serve others in love. And the irony there is, When we die to ourselves, we discover our freedom. Stand firm, obey the truth, serve others in love. And I praise God for his grace and how that's evident among us, you know, even in these early months. Uh, this love for the gospel and this love for the word. Often I've had, heard Peter remark at how he is enjoyed whenever he gets together with the saints and there's this quickness to this word and the, and the, and the sort of eagerness to talk about spiritual things. And, and how there is in the fellowship of the saints here this, this real and growing sense that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we help each other obey the truth, which means encouragement and creating a, a pervasive culture of encouragement. And from time to time means pulling somebody's shirt tail and, and offering a word of correction. It's how we continue to stay in our lane and not swerve as we run this race. And the expressions of love. I mean, they're plentiful. They're, they're just seen in the emails that go back and forth from a little Google group. If you're interested in being on a Google group, send us an email and we'll fill your inbox with little messages of love. <laughs> People inviting one another to go walk on the mall. Now, some of us haven't yet received that as love, but, you know, people in, inviting one another to go exercise, to go walk on the mall, to, to go see war room and to fellowship afterwards. And, and there's a need expressed. And, and one of my favorite emails is a short little email that comes through sometimes two words, need met. It's just a wonderful way of summarizing faith expressing itself in love, need met. And may the Lord grow that more and more as we live as his people. Stand firm, beloved, in the freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Obey the truth. Let no one hinder you. Stay in your lane and run the race. Express love toward your brothers and sisters and toward all in our community that we might die to self and make Christ glorious. Enjoy your freedom. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that some of us, all of us, have been slaves to sin. And we confess, O oh Lord, that in some instances we have been enslaved so long that freedom is a new and a frightening routine. We sometimes, Lord, want rules so that we won't have to think about how to live freely. We sometimes, Lord, want to constrain others because, Lord, their freedom scares us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to enjoy this freedom that you have purchased by the blood of your Son. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help those who have not yet come into that freedom to hear the invitation, to hear the call, to come to Christ and live. Make your word, O Lord, to be life to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.